story time because we are in the book of Judges. And I'm excited about going through the book with you as we continue through it. We're in one of the more familiar stories, somewhat. I think one of the reasons why it's so popular, so liked, is because the guy is such a chicken. Because he's such a chicken, many of us can relate to him and his fear. We really, in essence, took on the majority of almost all of chapter 6 of the book of Judges. But for the sake of it, let's read through the chapter. Oh, that's that's the kind of problem that just makes me nervous. So just kidding. Uh, <laughs> we'll read through the chapter to kind of get us into our context of where we pick up today. Read along with me if you would. We're in. Uh, let's try it again. We are in Judges, chapter six. We'll read through starting from verse 1. And we read this. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel because of the Midianites. The children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. Apparently they seem to be a very famous place by the time this is being written. And so it was, whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up, and also the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them, and then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza, and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts, Both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. And so Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. That's how bad it had to get. It came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites that the Lord sent a prophet, the first of two witnesses we'll see here, to the children of Israel who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up. From Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage and delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of those who oppress you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And then I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites who is land you dwell, but you've not obeyed my voice. Now, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah which belonged to Yoash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why? Then has all this happened to us, and where are all of his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hand of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? And he said to him, O my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Then he said to him, If I have now found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he said, Well, I'll wait until you come back. So Gideon went in and prepared a young goat. And unleavened bread from an ephah flour. The meat he put in a basket, and then he put the broth in a pot, and he brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock, and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat with the unleavened bread. And fire rose out from the rock, or out of the rock, 
and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread, and the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Now Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord. He was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it Yivah Shalom, or the Lord is peace. Uh, it's to this day, it's still there in Ophrah, the, uh, these rites. Now it came to pass in that same night that the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden images that is beside it. Build an altar to the Lord, your God, on top of this rock in the proper arrangement. Take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. So Gideon took the men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him, but because he feared his father's household, the men of the city were too much to do it by the city, feared his father's household, and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. And when the men of the city rose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down. And the wooden image that was beside it was cut down. And the second bull, which was being offered on the altar, had been built. So they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And when they inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, because he has torn down the altar of Baal, and because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. But Yoash said to all who stood against him, Would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. For if he's a god, well then let him plead for himself, because his altar has been torn down. Therefore on the day he call, they called him, or he called him, Yerubaal. Yeru means to plead or beg or teach. Baal, of course, the, which by the way is just the word for master saying, well, then let Baal plead, or that's what the name means, against him, since he's torn down the altar. Then all the Midianites and Amalekites and the people of the east gathered together, and they crossed over and encamped at the valley of Israel. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Then he blew the trumpet, and the Abiezrites gathered behind him, and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who also gathered behind him, and he also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they come up to meet him. That was pretty much where we left off. So let's kind of cap that up. In this horrible cycle of people getting comfortable and then turning their back on God, finding themselves in captivity and finally crying out to him for deliverance, God raising up a deliverer and then doing that and then them getting comfortable again. The people have again done evil in the sight of the Lord. They're living this life of compromise. They are, here's the strange thing, though they're living a life that God says is evil in his sight, they're still doing what is right in their own eyes, and there's something to learn from that. We can live in a place where we could be absolutely convinced that what we are doing is right. And yet it can still be evil in God's sight. Unless we are willing to listen to God's word. Unless we are willing to humble ourselves and trust God with God's word. We will almost always fill in blanks that God would fill in with his word with some kind of nonsense. And then be convinced we're okay in what we're doing when we're actually doing something that God would call ra'ah. Try this Hebrew word on for a size. Ra'ah. Try that. Ra'ah. You should be able to do that quite well. Ra'ah. <laughs> oh, that was awesome. If Daniel could just hear you now. Ra'ah is the word for evil. And what it means in its base word is to harm. Every Hebrew word comes from a verb. What a great language. Understand evil was not just something God doesn't like. It isn't like God tasted coffee and called it evil, or God heard country music and called it evil. It's things that he calls harmful. Now, you could debate those, but we'll talk about that some other day. But the point is, 
that when God calls something evil, he doesn't call it something just because somehow it doesn't fit God's taste. It is something that hurts you. And because it hurts you, he has a title for it, and that title is evil. And what man was doing, though it was completely right in his own eyes, was in God's eyes, the perfectly wise and all-knowing God that we're speaking of. It hurts you. It destroys you. Though we could be convinced, and that's where this time was. And when that time comes where now our backs are turned on God and we are convinced we can do it ourselves, God allows us to our own devices so we could be convinced and finally agree with him that we can't. So the people turned their backs on God. And with that, then God removed his provision, his protection, his pleasure from them just the way that he promised. And this is what it looked like. It was horrible. It was it went from a time before this, if you remember, where the men specifically were apathetic and indifferent. That was the time with a Barak, where the men really had no intent on asserting, no intent in leading, no intent on stepping forward and being godly, upright pillars. They just decided to kind of go with the flow, and the flow was flowing down the toilet. And it goes from that trajectory of apathy and indifference to a place of fear, where now we are afraid because it is so foreign to us to actually step up and do what we're supposed to that we don't even know how. I could dare say that that's often what we can see in the church. Not just our church, we mean the church, the church in Mass. Where the idea of evangelizing is so foreign that we are fearful because we don't even know how we would do it. The only people you really see sort of sharing Jesus often are the people who have just gotten saved because they're the only ones who have seen it because it's been done to them. Do you remember when you were there? That was you? And the reason I say that is, for some of you I knew, you were kind of wildcats in the very best of ways. Not like Zach Efron or something like that, but I mean like real, you were like full on, beautiful. And then you kind of got sedative like we all can get, you know, sort of sedate. And then we're like, I don't even know how to do this. But you knew how to do it when you were first saved. There's the ironic part. So as a result of that, what happens is God then sends a couple testimonies. Remember, the voice of two or more witnesses is a matter of established. And the first of them, by the way, is a prophet. And what the prophet says in the simplest sense is this. He's saying, I have a message from God. And you can argue who this person really is. But we read him as the angel, not an angel. But he says, in the simplest sense, God's like, didn't I do everything in front of you? Didn't I deliver you? Didn't I take you out of bondage? Didn't I destroy the enemy? Haven't I taken down every false god, every opponent, every giant, every obstacle, every challenge, every horrible thing that's gone against you? Have I not taken them all down yet? And I've only given you one thing then. Don't be afraid of the next one. Why could you possibly be afraid when nothing that you're going to fight now is it can even can remotely be compared to what he's already taken down in your life? So he goes, I only have one challenge then. Don't fear the next one. If I've taken down the big ones, if I've dropped every giant, then don't fear the next one. He goes, but you didn't do that. You're acting out of fear because you're actually thinking that their God's bigger or you're fearful because somehow you think there's more power behind whatever opposes you than the one you're standing in. Have you ever done that? In the world that we live in? Because they seem to have more media or more money or more coverage or more momentum or more political sway or more social sway. And we're thinking, oh, how could I possibly make a difference? And God says, hey, look at Have I not taken down every other giant? Why are you afraid of this? And that was the message. The good news is he didn't say it was a result of that. You're fired. And then we read about an angel showing up. 
And the angel, what we read is actually was there before he appeared. That's important to note. He was there before Gideon could see him. Now, what was he doing? We don't read. Watching him, whistling, just observing, figuring out the best time to freak him out and make him scream like a little girl. I'm not really sure. Now, that's you could obviously tell because if I were an angel, that's what I would do. And that's one of the reasons why I could say in this sense, I'm not that type of a messenger. But then he finally shows up and he says, Hail, mighty man of valor. The Lord is with you. Gideon's response is all cynicism, or I should say skepticism. So he kind of looks and he goes, If God's really with me, why are things so rough? Have you ever been there? Things are rough. How could God possibly be in the middle of this if things are so rough? If I have these challenges and these people are being weird like this and this thing is happening and it just seems like there's one challenge after another. How could God possibly be in the middle of that? But praise God, the angel does not get into a debate with him. He does not. Is where the prophet gives this first testimony. Now an angel, the angel, gives this testimony. He doesn't argue and say, well, let me just kind of, let's go into this theologically. He just goes, and he's, as if he didn't even hear Gideon's nonsense. And he says, now go in this might. Well, what might? I mean, Gideon's response seemed to be very mightless. Well, listen to the statement the angel had made. The Lord is with you. There's your might. You know why you're going to win? Because the Lord is with you. You don't have to see it. You don't have to, you don't have to be able to experience there doesn't have to be a tingle or a sweat or a holy shake or an angel feather or whatever for God to be there. He's there whether you feel him or not. He's there whether you see him or not. He's there whether you know it or not. He is there. And the angel kind of did that, by the way, in his own way. He kind of was there and then he showed up. He's like, you know, I was there before you even knew it. And you would have said, well, where was that angel? You wouldn't have seen me. But now let me say the Lord's with you. Go in that might. And the first thing he does after that, he says, now, please hear me as we move into this text from this point on. He says, you've got some house cleaning to do. If you're going to be a world changer, there are things in your house that are not appropriate for a world changer. I mean, you have an altar to a false god. You have a pillar shaped like a, a male member that people come to worship at. Your house now is becoming a temple for other people. People are coming over so they can sin against me there. And this is God's people we're speaking about. The tribe of Manasseh, the family of Abiezer. And he goes, those things need to go. Now, the great thing is, is that in our particular culture, I don't know if we have anything that we can all agree that this is a, an altar for everyone. But there are things that can be. Our technology can certainly be an altar. The places that we gravitate to in our media can be an altar. Anything that we can set up and say, because of this thing, this standard, I'm allowed to sin and it's okay, that can be, a, that can be a, an offense. That can be a lie you choose to hold on to. That somehow you say, well, I got on the Internet some guy that said that, that what I'm doing is totally fine. And I'm willing to side with that, even if it doesn't seem to make sense how he pulled it out of Scripture. And what the angel says is, it's time to clean your house, because if you're going to change the world around you, we need to change the world in you first. So he does. And then the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. God did not want to empower him before his, while his house was such a mess. God does not want to bless our mess. What God wants. Now look at, let's be honest, the majority of our life is going to take God to kind of get in, grab the bulldozer and start just burning that, burning through. Our job, to be honest, is really to be willing to let him and actually be thankful when he does. But there are choices we still need to make. There are choices we still need to make because part of it is granting God, we want to give you permission to get into that place in my life, my dating life or my, my value system, on um, what I listen to or what I watch, who I hang out with, what I think is important, my thought life. Those things, it's like I want to give you permission in all areas of my life and in doing that, burn away everything that, doesn't, that you don't want a part of. 
that it does, if it doesn't reconcile to you, then it shouldn't be a part of my life. And that's where Gideon is in this. He's still doing it fearful. I mean, when the prophet comes, we don't read that Gideon was there. When the angel comes, he's speaking to Gideon, and Gideon actually says, I need a sign to even believe that you're an angel of the Lord. And then when the angel proves that he's the angel of the Lord, then the next thing that happens is Gideon thinks he's going to die. And he doesn't stop it. Do you really think I'm going to call you to something and kill you? Then, Gideon does some house cleaning. Now notice, though he's still fearful, he still does house cleaning. He grabs a group of people, and might I say, here's my first challenge to you in this. If you are afraid, then don't do it alone. If you're afraid, though you know the Lord's put something on your heart, then don't do it alone. Go and grab a couple other people that you know are servants of the same Lord, and say, I know God's called me to it, and I know if I'm telling you this, I'm going to be held accountable. Now, can you help me get this done in my life? Help me kick this out. Help me bash this thing in. Help me get rid of this. Help me cancel this thing. Help me do whatever I need to do to get this thing right. Because God just wants to do more than just make you happy. He wants to do more than give you a little bit of joy or give you a little bit of peace. He wants to turn you into a fountain so that everything he pours in you is so overflowing that other people benefit from that. Your household, your friends, this church, the neighborhood you're working in, the neighborhood you're living in, those kind of things. But here's the best part now as we get to that, because it becomes a bit funny. Because this guy who is fearful, because this guy who is unsure, is going to send very mixed messages as a person can. Now please understand, starting in verse 34 now, when he blows that trumpet, we're going to see here, he is still unsure, but the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. And what that tells me is the Spirit of the Lord can come upon somebody that's not totally sure what in the world they're doing. Praise the Lord for that. You know what that means? You can be qualified too. Verse 34 says, But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew the trumpet. And remember, he's from the family of Abiezer, so that means the Abezrites, that's his family, gathered behind him when they blew the trumpet. So his family all showed up. Then he sent messengers through the tribe he's from, which is Manasseh, and they gathered behind him. And then he sent more messengers, this time to the surrounding tribes, that's Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they came up to meet him. So now he's got a handful of tribes, he's got his family, and as it's the case, Gideon, now imagine, imagine what this would be like. What we're going to find is that there are roughly here about 32,000 guys. That's a lot of guys to show up. So you've blown the trumpet, and then 32,000 guys finally show up. And as 32,000 guys show up, wouldn't you want in a moment like that a very rousing, dedicated, confident speech? You want a Winston Churchill to step up at a moment like this and say, this is going to be the greatest moment of victory we've ever seen. I mean, wouldn't you want that? But notice what it says. Verse 36. So Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, look, I shall put a fleece of wool out on the threshing floor. And if there's dew on the fleece only, and it's dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you shall save Israel by my hand, as you've said. And it was so that when he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung out the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, don't be angry with me, but let me speak just once more, lest I, let me, let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece, now let it be dry on the fleece, but on the ground let it be dew. So God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on the ground. Now, this is where we get the term to fleece from. And I don't know if you've ever heard that. I'm going to fleece God. And what that means is, I'm going to, God, I'm going to look for some kind of specific sign, something clear. But here's the funny part. Don't miss this. The Holy Spirit has come upon Gideon because his house has been clean. And as his house has been clean, now it's like, all right, now I want to put you to work. So he blows the trumpet. 32,000 people show up. And he goes, wait there. And then he goes to God and he says, God, all right, I've got to make sure here there's a bunch of people out there. So let's do this thing. And it's going to last for at least two nights. What are 32,000 guys doing while Gideon's still trying to work this thing out with God for the next couple nights? Are they like kind of playing games with each other? Are they doing Uno? I mean, what is it that they're, we don't read. But what would you do? You're kind of like, well, what's, what's wrong with this guy? 
seemed confident in a moment ago when he blew the trumpet. But once he blew the trumpet, and you kind of know how that is. There are times where God gives you that moment of inspiration. And you're like, hey, you guys, let's do something. And they're like, yeah. And they're like, what? And you're like, I don't know. But I'm excited about doing something for God. And here's the thing. It is never for naught. God loves it when you've got to go for it in your heart. And if you really think, well, it didn't pan out. Yeah, it did. Okay, maybe it didn't save a million people or clothe a thousand people or house a thousand people or whatever. What, but, but if you just went for it with the Lord, wouldn't the Lord be blessed by that? Do you think you'd be more blessed by that or more blessed by you going, I'm not going to do anything because I'm afraid I can't do it well. I mean, which one of those do you think blesses God more? And please hear me in this. Gideon kind of goes and he goes, all right, I need to be sure because there are going to be 32,000 people following me. What he doesn't know is that God's going to whittle that down in a big way. The army, what we're going to see, by the way, in the following chapter, that the army that they're going to stand against has at least 135,000 people. He doesn't know that. All he knows is that he's been bullied now. For eight years. He's been bullied like the weak kid at school. So he goes, all right, God. All right, let's work this out. Okay, you guys, wait here. I'll be right back in a couple days. And so he kind of goes and he says, all right, I've got this, you know, this sheepskin. And I'm going to lay it out. And then God, let the ground be dry tomorrow morning. But the, the fleece be wet. So he comes out and he's like, wow, the ground's dry. Well, the fleece is wet. And then he's going, wait a minute, that was stupid. Why did I tell God that? Of course the fleece is going to be wet. The fleece isn't going to dry as fast as the grass is. What was I thinking? All right, God, I'm really sorry. Can I do that again? Can I do a retake? Here's the thought. Let's do it the other way around, because that would actually kind of be more of a miracle if the fleece was dry, but the ground was still wet. So could you do that the next day? Here's the most amazing thing. God had put that calling on Gideon's life. Don't miss that. God knew he was scared. God knew he wasn't necessarily equipped. But God knew this, that though he was going to put God to test, though he was going to flee some, though he was going to act kind of weak, and though he was going to act fearful, one thing's for sure. By the time this whole thing comes down, Gideon's going to be victorious. And God has this victory in your life. He has this calling in your life to walk in victory. And you don't even know it yet, how big the victory is. You don't even know the way God's going to use you. Yeah, you to be the world changer because you're kind of going me, but I'm kind of just me. As if somehow we're informing God that he made a poor choice because what what we really needed was God was kind kind of kicking the other 10%. And he needed somebody that had a great 90% to offer God. But what God loves is the person that's so the underdog because then he gets the credit like he should. So he kind of looks at and Gideon goes, okay, well, let's kind of work this thing out. And here are these people, and you can imagine he's got thirty, you know, he's got thirty-five thousand people or thirty-two thousand people, and they're all gathered together. And he's like, all right, I, I, God's told me something, but but wait here for a couple of days. And he kind of works this thing out, and that takes us to the next chapter. Now, by the way. He has gathered the army before the battle has started, by the way. Before they've even drawn their battle lines. Chapter 7. Then Yerubbaal, remember that's Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the well at Herod. Can you say Herod? Herod, nice. In Herod, by the way, a place that we visited. This story always gives me a little bit of the shakes because of something that had happened there years ago with my daughter. But... In uh, Herod, by the way, means, and this should be easy to remember, because the spring of trembling. And that's an appropriate name for this. All the people who were there rose early. They went to En Herod, so that the camp of the so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them, by the hill of More, in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, "The people who are with you are too many. He's got thirty-two thousand." The camp on the other side has 135,000. There's too many of you. You go, too many of us. We're outnumbered four or five to one. Guy goes, yeah, there's still too many of you. Now, please hear me in this. Because sometimes in a challenge in your life, you ever gone to there where God really doesn't step in until it's impossible? 
And you, you almost get angry. Start going, God, where are you? How come you haven't jumped? I mean, it's been a challenge now for a while. It's been rough for a while. But God knows when, if he were to step in early, how little credit he would get and how quickly we would forget. What's amazing is even in the great victories that God has given us in our life, how easy it is to remember the challenge and how easy it is to forget how God actually still conquered it in the end. Like, remember, oh, I remember how uncomfortable and fearful and, you know, I'm God, don't you care? We're perishing. I remember those moments, but I don't remember how he calms the sea. Because I can remember how great, how much greater the emotion was when I thought I was going to die. How sad is that? And we wonder why our faith struggles. When we look back at our past and we see struggle after struggle instead of victory after victory. So listen, Gideon is afraid. And we're going to see that here in a moment. But God looks and he says, even though you're outnumbered four or five to one, it's still not impossible enough for me to step in. And there are times where you ever feel like, okay, you're kind of hanging on this thing and you're thinking, I'm giving my very best on this thing and it's just barely has a pulse. And God says, well, then maybe the problem is you're trying to do this instead of letting me. So they're at a place called the spring of trembling. And God says, there's too many of you. Verse 2 again, the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying my own hand has saved me. Therefore, proclaiming in the hearing of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 left. 10,000 remained. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 8, God had already set that as a standard. He said, the officer shall speak to the, um, speak further to the people and say, what man among you is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house, lest the heart of his, lest the heart of his, of his brethren faint like his heart. What God says is fear is contagious. And we're aware of that. Here's the problem. The one person I'm sure of that is afraid cannot go home. And that's Gideon. Have you ever thought that through? God says, all right, look, we need to weed this out. There's still too many of them. Now, there's 32,000. It's four or five to one. I mean, if 2,000 left, that would still be too many, wouldn't you think, if you were the one leading this battle? But Gideon isn't the one leading the battle. He's following the Lord into it. So imagine, he says, look, at, all right, if you're fearful, go home, and it looks like everyone goes home. I mean, this is two-thirds of your army. And yet Gideon, the one we're sure of is fearful, cannot leave. Look at, sometimes God puts you in a place where you cannot leave, though you really want to. Where you, you almost feel stuck in the ministry, stuck in the thing, stuck in this position, where all of a sudden you're like, I can't get out of this thing. And God goes, exactly, though you are more fearful than many of the people who are leaving at the moment. Because God's like, I'm setting you up for a miracle, and I want you to trust me. And if you had the chance to leave, you would have, and you would have missed the whole thing, and you wouldn't have even been written in the Scripture. I wonder how many people God would have called that would have just said no, and from that then, never made it into Scripture. So imagine, he's like, okay, so any of you who are fearful, go home. And then he looks, and now there's 10,000 guys to 135,000 guys. That is now 13 and a half to one. That means for every one guy on Israel's side, in the Israeli army, 13 and a half guys on the, on the enemy's army are going to be fought. Would you think, well, now it's impossible, not in God's sight. It's not totally impossible. This is kind of like he's mostly dead, but not totally dead. And so it says, in verse 4, at this point, you would not want to hear God speak these words, would you? You wouldn't, didn't want to hear it the last time, but you're like, oh, please don't say this again. But the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test for you. I'll test them there for you. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, the one shall go with you, the same shall go down, and 
Whomever I say to you, this one shall not go with you. Well, the same shall not go. We're now down to 7%. We are 7% the size of the other army. So we brought the people down to the water, verse 5. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps from the water with, um, with his tongue like a dog laps, set him apart for himself. Like Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. The number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, were 300 men. But the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. So the Lord says, now, by this 300 men who lapped, I will save you. To deliver Midian into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. Now that means there are, at this point, if you think about it, there were 10,000, now 9,700 of them, he has to say, go home. I imagine when there were 300 were sort of separated, you almost go, no, wait a minute, those are, maybe God got it wrong, maybe he really just wanted to send those 300. Somewhere down to 97. No, 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 300 guys are all you've got now. And what's interesting is you go to this particular spring, and it's kind of interesting in the way it is. He says there's two different kinds of guys. There's a guy who's going to kind of get down on his knee, and he's going to do this. Like a soldier would. He's going to get down, and he's going to be like this. He's always going to be on his guard. Then there are going to be other guys that are going to just be like this. My guess is they're the old fat guys. They're the ones who really can't get in that comfortable position and be ready to fight. They're just going to throw themselves into the water. Like, you know, in other words, imagine you've got 10,000 guys, and of the 10,000 guys, 300 of them are just going, water! Uh, uh, like that. And he goes, yeah, those are the ones I want. And you're like, are you kidding me? The fat old guys? I mean, look, maybe if I got 9,700, you know, like, crack seal guys, maybe. Well, God's weeding out the weaker guys. He's going to give us the elite, the Delta Force. Sure. No. What is he? I mean, this isn't even red. This is instead, this is just like the guys that are just retired and not dangerous at all. And they're just kind of pudging around. And he goes, how about these guys? Now, how would you like to be Gideon at this moment? Would you do the fleece one more time? And here's the beauty. God knows when you're playing. And God knows when you're serious. When Gideon did this whole thing with the fleece, he was really serious about getting an answer. He wasn't just playing the game of delaying that we could do sometimes, saying, God, I need another sign. But really what we're saying is, I just really don't want to do anything. And I'm just going to keep making you do stuff so that it's buying me time. And we know that we can do that with God. Because Gideon doesn't go back to the fleece anymore. But God is still going to give him another assurance. Don't miss this. This guy started out scared. Now he's taking on 135,000 people with 300 guys. That means that his army is 0.002% the size of the other. God says, yeah, that seems about impossible enough. You ever tell God something is impossible so that you think he'll act if you could just kind of finagle that he's convinced that you're convinced that it's impossible? Does that make any sense? Or you're like, God, this is clearly, this is it. This is clearly as bad as it could get, right? God's like, oh, no, no, no. I'm going to make it more impossible. I'm not just going to give you a big guy. I'm going to give you a Goliath. I'm just going to not going to make things rough. I'm going to make things impossible. I'm going to make it so that my son dies because you can't get more impossible than death. So that when I raise him from the dead, it wasn't like Jesus was just sick and got better. I didn't just give him cancer or AIDS or a headache or I'm like, I made it impossible. He bled. He's choked to death. His body was drained of its fluids. He was as dead as anything could possibly be dead. Because God made it impossible so that only God can do it. In other words, listen, listen, listen. In order for it to be a miracle, it has to be impossible. And there's the problem. Is I want miracles, but I don't want impossible. I want miracles when I could have done it maybe with a little effort. 
But God wants, God knows the only way we'll embrace a great miracle is when we truly are keenly aware of how helpless we are without him. How dead we are without him. And it's my fault that I'll put myself in those situations because he really wants to let me know he is almighty. Almighty. And I think, what about what in your life right now is impossible? What have you written off? By now it stinketh. What have you written off? What have you gone, you know, it's impossible. Because I'm already seeing these miracles happen around us. God healing and restoring things. Resurrecting things that are dead. And he happens to be in the business of that. The Lord says in verse 7 to Gideon, By these 300, or by the 300 men who lapped, I will save you, and deliver the Midianites in your hand. What we're going to find in a moment is that it doesn't really matter what these guys, what shape these guys are in, because God's going to let them do it to themselves. Let all the people go, every man in his place. So the people took provisions and their trumpets in their hands, and he sent away the rest of all to, of, of, of Israel, every man to his tent, and retained those 300 men. Now the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So we're kind of on the rim of a valley looking at 135,000 men. And it happened on that same night that the Lord said to him, this is God now speaking to Gideon, get up, arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. But if you were afraid to go down, then go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. Pura means bow, by the way. Bow is in like a branch of a tree. And you shall hear what they have to say. And afterwards, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Well, then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. So God's like, hey, look at Go down into the camp. I'd like to give you a little bit of encouragement. I can tell you're scared. He woke him up to do this, by the way. Notice God said, get up. That night. So imagine you're sleeping or trying to sleep. Maybe it's like a relatively sleepless night because you're freaked out because you know that you're going to be leading these men into their suicide mission. And God says, all right, I'm going to meet you right here, right now. Go down to the camp and check out what, let me bring you some encouragement. Go down to the camp. You know, like the last place I would expect to get encouragement is the enemy camp. How about you? And he goes, but if you're afraid to go down by yourself, well, then go ahead and grab your servant and the two of you can go. So what did he do? He grabbed his servant and he went. What does that tell us? He was afraid. And here we are again. When you were afraid, don't do it alone. Grab somebody else with you and say, come on, help me. Let's do this together. Verse 12. He went down with Purah's servant to the outpost of the armed men who were at the camp. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites, all the people of the east, were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camel without number, camels without number, like sand of the seashore in multitude. And when Gideon had come, obviously this is a huge crowd of people that he's kind of walking beside or walking at the outskirt of. There was a man telling a dream to his companion. And he said, I have had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. And it came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned and the tent collapsed. Oh, you know how it is around the campfire. Those stories you tell. The one with the hook. And the Mary Worth stories. And the Lizzie Borden stories. And you know the stories of the, 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 the doll that comes alive and chases you to your house. And of course, scariest of them all is the tent-destroying barley loaf of doom. Right? Isn't that in there? You know, you go to one of those restaurants and you get the basket and you get the bread and you get the really nice pieces of bread and you get these kind of things and they're about the size of your fist and they're darker colored. That's a barley loaf. It's roughly about the size of your fist. And imagine this guy is telling me, God's like, you got to check this out. So imagine it's not Gideon, it's you. So God says, Cam, get up with me for a moment. Check this out. Cam goes, are you kidding me? But if you're afraid, go ahead and take Lorraine with you. 
Lorraine's pretty buff. I've watched her do hip hop. So Cam takes Lorraine and the two of them and imagine they're kind of like trying to be cool, but they're kind of going like this, right? They're kind of hiding behind trees and they're... Right? And they're kind of hiding behind things and they hear these guys around the campfire and they're like, Hey, Bob! Yeah, how's it going? I had a dream. What was your dream? Well, I had a dream that this roll, this dinner roll, rolled down and knocked over a tent. Would that have done it for you? I don't know about me. But notice what he says. Verse, verse 14, then Hugo responds, or his companion answered, he said, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Yosh, the man of Israel. Into his hand God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. You can't write a script like this. Imagine there's Gideon with Buddha next to him, and what he hears about is the barley, rolling tent barley, you know, roll loaf of doom, and it comes down and he knocked over a tent that was a dream, and the guy goes, Oh no, it was so it's true. Oh no, we're gonna die. That's Gideon, the barley loaf. This is here's the cool part. It's funny to me because I don't think God would have to do this for me. I I think he'd have to do something else, maybe. But for him, it worked. The question is, what do you do when you are convinced that God's going to give you victory? What do you do when you're convinced you have victory? Well, look at what Gideon does. So it was... When Gideon heard the telling of this dream and its interpretation, that he worshipped. You know, when we don't feel victorious, we feel like we're losing the battle, the last place we want to go is praise. We feel like we hear people declaring God's goodness and surrender and we're like, yeah, whatever. I asked for them, I'm sure they're lying like I would be if I was doing this. And we don't want to praise them like we should. But if we were willing to listen to God like we should even tonight, we should be brought to a place where praise should be the natural response to a victorious God who promises us that victory. But it didn't just make him, that promise didn't just make him worship, it made him confident and it made him bold. So you know what happens as a result? He returned to the camp of Israel and he said, Now get up. The Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. That was what it worked. It worked for Gideon. The scaredy cat, the cynic, and now the soldier. He didn't just go back and say, well, I should probably sleep on that. It made him, it gave him a sense of urgency to act now. He says, we do have victory. Clearly we have victory. The last thing I ever expected was for the giant enemy in front of us to be freaking out over a campfire story about a barley loaf. But guys, let's get up. And here's a great thing. You know what I'm going to arm you with? I'm going to arm you with, you ready for this? I'm going to arm you with a torch and a trumpet. And that's it. Okay, maybe you can have a sword on the side, but hey, one hand's going to have a torch and another hand's going to have a trumpet. And there you go. How's that? So verse 19, Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just as they had posted the watch, and they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. They took the torches. I'm, I'm sorry, one couple of verses before that. Let me do this. Verse 16. He divided the, the 300 men into three companies. That's a hundred of men, hundred a group. And he put a trumpet in everyone's hand and, and empty pitchers, put the pitchers over them, and torches inside the pitcher, uh, pitchers. And then he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. Watch. And when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. Blow the trumpet. And as you blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you shall blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp and say, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. There's your plan. So here it is. You've got a light. And you put that light in an earthen vessel. And then you take a trumpet. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to surround the enemy. And then we're going to break those earthen vessels. And once we break those earthen vessels, we are going to blow the trumpets. How's that sound, guys? 
But this is what Scripture says. That in the book of Corinthians, the first Corinthians, it tells us that we have treasure, infinite treasure housed in jars of clay and earthen vessels. Do you know what that earthen vessel was, according to the Corinthians? It was your body. It was you. Remember, Jesus said first that he was the light of the world. He said that in the book of Matthew. Actually, he told us that actually in the book of John. But then he would tell us that we are the light of the world in the book of Matthew. Get this. There is a light. And he says, you don't take that light and you put it under a bushel. But that light is contained inside this earthen vessel. But you know what's going to have to happen for it to be truly victorious? It's going to have to be broken. And that's the part I don't necessarily like the most, except that it's actually required for victory, is that I'm going to actually have to let God break this thing that I think is me so that the light can shine the way it should. And then what happens? Then you blow the trumpet. Throughout Scripture, blowing the trumpet calls God's people and proclaims God's praise. We declare with a trumpet. We proclaim with a trumpet. We announce with a trumpet. And can I say this is exactly what God is looking for. He's looking for broken vessels to which His light has been instilled that are willing to blow the trumpet and declare the name of Jesus. That's what He wants. When He tells us, let our light so shine that they may see our good works among men. I get the idea that there is a necessity of acting, but he also tells us that if we're going to blow the trumpet, we have to do it in Jesus' name. Because no matter what we do, we do it in the name of Jesus Christ. So we are kind, and we shine our light in what we do, but we do it in a way that we make sure that people know this is about Jesus, this isn't about me, this isn't about my club, this isn't about Calvary Chapel, this is about Jesus Christ. And that's what we do. We come and we let God break the earthen vessel and we let him shine his light through them. And as it happens, we let the trumpets get blown. Now all that's left is to see what happens to the enemy. So, verse 19, So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just as they had posted the watch, roughly around midnight. And they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. (coughs) And then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers. They held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing. Remember, the left hand is for counsel. The right hand is to act. I think that's interesting. Since the left hand is where the light is, and according to Psalm 119, the light is God's word, is a lamp into our feet and a light to our path. And they cried the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and the whole army ran and cried out and fled. And when the 300, notice it wasn't just when they screamed that, it was when they blew the trumpets. When the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp, and the army fled to Beth Acacia, towards Zerada, as far as the border of Abel by Tabat. Now, don't miss this picture. In the valley, there are 135,000 guys, and they're sleeping. Swords in hand, ready for action. It's pitch black down there. Surrounding them now is a group of guys. How many? How many guys are surrounding them? 300. 300 guys. 300 guys have their torches in their earthen vessels, and they have their their trumpets. They break those things, and they're like, all right, ready? And they hold those things up, but the moment they go... These guys wake up, and what do they do? They go, oh, and they just start stabbing everything in sight because they think the army's in the camp. But what are they stabbing? Each other. That's why it didn't matter whether they were big, fat guys or not. It didn't matter if they were really old guys. So we'll see they'll be pursued because the army's going to kill themselves. They're like, ah, and this is what, imagine there you are, and you're thinking, oh, Lord, how are you going to do this? And then you watch them kill themselves in front of you, and you're like, Oh, I didn't think of that. That wasn't in my script. How about yours? Notice the part that was your job. Your part was hold the light. Your part was blow the trumpet. That was your part. God's part. Let the enemy take himself down and they'll do it by themselves. Watch what happens. 
The last thing you want is to just jump in that camp while God does that. Until it's your time. Last few verses. And the men of Israel gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh and pursued the Midianites. Then Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountains of Ephraim saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize them. The watering place is as far as Beth Barach at the, at the Jordan. Then all the men of Ephraim gathered together and seized the watering places as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. Why is that important? The first place, the one place we have here emphasized is a place called Beth Barah on the Jordan. Because somebody was willing to hold up their light and someone was willing to blow their trumpet Bethabara became free. Are you with me on that? So what's the big deal? Is anyone familiar with Bethabara? No, that's probably why that doesn't make you so excited. Turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, for a moment, as we're just about done. We have one verse beyond this. Gospel of John, chapter 1. I'm turning there myself. John chapter 1. Verse 19. Read for a moment. Now this was the testimony of John. This is John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? We confessed, didn't deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, Well then, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, No, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He said, No. Then they said, well, then who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you have to say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, and the, as the prophet Isaiah said. No, those that were sent from, from the Pharisees. And they asked him, then, well, then why do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor the Elijah, or the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize indeed with water. But there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal straps I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Do you know what's going to take place there? Some guy went into the middle of his wilderness, was willing to be broken, and he held out his light, and he blew his trumpet, and this desperate world around him came to him. And he said, repent, because the kingdom of heaven's at hand, and there's one coming, you better be looking for him. And there at Bethabara, Jesus steps into the water. The heavens part. And God says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And that took place at a place that Israel is free to do that. Because another guy here, 1,200 years before, held up his lamp, held up his light, blew his trumpet, and God gave him the space to do it. And that's here, back in our story. Our last verse, back in Judges, chapter 7. And they captured two, prince, two princes of the Midianites, Orev and Ziv. By the way, Orev means raven, and Ziv means wolf. Can I give you an idea? I feel like this is kind of like one of those... Black light posters back in the day. And they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, appropriate place apparently, and Zeb they killed at the, the wine press of Zeb. They pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb, who I remind you here were two princes on the other side of the Jordan. As we go to prayer tonight, here's my prayer again. Here's my challenge. When you look at this coming year, we are now on the cusp of looking at 2016. You guys ready to write that on your, uh, whatever you have to write it on? We don't write it on lots of things these days. We kind of let our phones do all the work now. But when we have to do that, what do you see? More challenges? More dreadful confrontations? More crazy human behavior? Because if you look back at 2015, have you seen? Challenges, crazy human behavior, confrontations. 
Has not the Lord shown himself faithful in all? He will bring to light the lies. And he will bring to light the truth. So we can embrace the truth. It is amazing how we can embrace things, be so sure we're right, and still it will be evil in God's sight. But God knows how to flesh that out and make the truth be known. Do you look and you, are you fearful? Are you fearful of the giants that may come up and arise in 2016? The new issues of life that may present themselves and line up when the bugle's blown on the other side? Or are you ready to grab your light? Are you ready to grab your trumpet and say, I'm going to have my torch, I'm going to have my trumpet, and I'm going to follow the Lord to victory after victory? If there's a challenge, that means there's a victory awaiting us. If there's a need, then there's a provision God's going to show us. If there's some challenge, if there's some competition, if there's some obstacle, for every one of those things, there will be a testimony on the other side of it. And our God is, is faithful, only faithful and almighty. You know that, right? In your head? Are we faithful enough to put that faith in him, to not be fearful, but to get excited, full of hope for the future, for what he's going to do? Well, maybe tonight what he wants to do is do some house cleaning. Are there altars that need to be torn down? Pillars that have been set up that have granted you some form of license to do something you know God doesn't approve of? Well, let's let God tear them down. You know what's on the other side of that? Anointing. Victory. And if you don't feel like you're totally sure what's going to happen next, that's okay. Gideon didn't know either, but he'll wind up being a hero in this to this degree until he gets older. That'll be another lesson to learn soon. You feel like you're outnumbered, outmanned, outclassed, out whatever? How could you be the minority when God's on your side? How could you ever be the minority when the heaven of heavens can't contain the one who stands to fight for you? Think that through. The undefeated, heavyweight champion of the universe. He's never lost a round. So I want to pray for us. Is our God made things as impossible as it could be when his son took all of our sin upon himself and died on that cross? And of course, we have to give the disciples that. When a person dies, they don't raise themselves from the dead. Jesus was raising others, but he didn't, you know, the thought of him raising himself, well, that's another story. But to see him raised as the father raises him from the dead shows us that in the most hopeless of situations, God is still victorious as long as he is the one who fights for you. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, I thank you for this beautiful text. I thank you for this wonderful chapter. I thank you, Lord, that today in this room, you've brought challenge after challenge with us about what you want to do, what you want to accomplish, things you want to see done. And I pray tonight, Lord, that we will be spiritually ready. Lord, I pray that as we look at 2015, we do not look at it with, whew, am I glad that that's over because of all of the challenges, the buffeting that we've gone through this year. Certainly there have been disappointments and heartbreaks. Certainly there has been, uh, there have been people being people. But Lord, what's clear is you are faithful you were always right, and you were always good. And I pray, Lord, that we would see the victories you've wrought and not just the challenges we've experienced. We'd see the provisions that you've given instead of the needs that we've experienced. That we would see the hope that you brought out at the break of a day when instead of just the weeping that endured for a night, and tonight, Lord, I just pray that you, inf- you instill within us the perfect child from great faith, and that's hope. Hope that says, God, as I look to the future, you are so good, I know it's going to be amazing, and I trust you. Come what may, I trust you. 
So God, don't let me put upon my shoulders what doesn't belong there. Don't let me fight what's not my battle, but let me follow you into the battle that you lead me in so that I could see your victory after victory after victory. And Lord, I don't need to sort of sum up or suss out the enemy and in that somehow be an expert in the enemy, but be somehow a novice in you. I want to be so keen, so close, and so aware of you. Forgive us of those times where we're fleecing you. Those times where we have to hear somebody tell a story of a dangerous bread roll. Forgive us of those times, God, where we're where we may just feel like we can't do it alone, but thank you for the puras you put in our life, those boughs, those branches you extend to us, where we can kind of hang on that limb for a moment and, and make us those to other people and give us those in our own life where we're like, you know, I just feel like I'm faltering in my faith right now. And, and there could be someone that would be just, or, or some others that, that are brothers or sisters that could come alongside and say, well, then let's go and let's hear the truth of, of God's word. Let's, let's hear the, the promises and the victory that we hear of. And in doing so, God, let us see how you turn the enemy upon himself. We declare, Lord, that the greatest act that you've ever done in challenge was because of our sin. And when you sent Jesus on that cross to die for us, clearly there our price had to be paid, and it was. And when he died, it would have been hopeless if you weren't involved. The same way that because we were guilty, it would have been hopeless until you got involved, unless you would have gotten involved. But because you did, because you intervened, because you asserted yourself, because you cracked the sky and came down here, because of that, we have hope where there was no hope, light where there was darkness, life where there was only death. And so we just cry out and say, because Jesus is our Lord and Savior and because we've confessed him so, we trust you. You are our Father and you're not here to give us a stone or a scorpion, but rather you're to fill us to overflowing so that those who are thirsty around us could come and drink. So Lord, may we be people who are bright with your light, your word guiding our feet, a light to our path. And that our behavior be one that's consistent with the gospel. But our trumpets in our right hand that we act upon with our clear proclamation that this is in Jesus' name. And with that, bring great victory as we commit ourselves to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, beloved, tonight, if any of you want to kind of put your money where your mouth is, so to speak, uh, we have an opportunity to do something tonight if you want to. I, I recognize this is a volunteer-only thing. But uh, there have been some gals who have, uh, as we know, we've been collecting the jumpers and jackets for Jesus. People have gone with jumpers, jackets, jeans, and jewelry. I don't know. That seems like they've kind of brought all kinds of things. Uh, but but we, we want to do is we want to kind of go out to places where people who might need a coat, who might need a jumper, who might need something, and we're going to just kind of come with bags and we're going to go and we want to give the, the truth of Jesus Christ and we want to go and be practical on this. We want to take our light and our trumpet out tonight. So if you want to do that with us, uh, Cam, would you raise your hand so people know who Cam is? There's Cam. Uh, we'll get Cam in the clothes in the back and then you guys will gather around and maybe in about 10 minutes we can kind of figure out how to kind of get a group out and we'll start kind of figuring out where we want to go tactically and all that. But please get yourself some tea. Enjoy this evening. And expect me. May God even now be raising up puras in your life. Become one to someone tonight. God bless you.